think change becomes difficult? At what age? A baby. Yeah, exactly. Um, change is unfortunately one of those things we just simply have to deal with. There is no way to say, I'm not going to change. There is no way to say, my life is not going to change. There is no way to say, change is not coming. It affects all of us. I think there's two enjoyable quotes that I like to think about. One is by Jim Rohn that says, your life does not get better by chance. It gets better by change. And the other one by John Maxwell, both authors and speakers, change is inevitable. Growth is optional. I remember how strange it was after I had moved away from my childhood home and visited it, the neighborhood, about 10, 15 years later. And everything was so small. Everything was so different. There weren't the same cars in the driveway. People had painted their houses. It's almost like I didn't recognize it. There were only a few things, the streets mainly, that I knew. Okay, I remember those, but everything else sort of was different. Have you noticed any changes or differences in Pueblo since you first moved here? Or maybe <laughs> since you were first born? And would you say those changes were good changes? Or would you say those changes were bad changes? Both. Both. I mean, we have good changes and bad changes. I mean, I think a good thing is all the advancement we've had in the last 50, 60 years in the medical field, right? Isn't that a great change that we have? Better medicine, better diagnosis, better treatments, those are fantastic things. Maybe not so good that we have a fast food restaurant on every corner. Maybe not. Um, although that doesn't seem to stop me from going. But there are good changes and bad changes. And in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah has for over 12 years invested in good changes for Jerusalem. I mean, he started out just weeping and wailing and going to God with these heartfelt prayers about helping Jerusalem because it had been, become desolate. It had become a wasteland. It once was a thriving metropolis that had commerce and joy and, and a center of God's people for worship. And then it was destroyed, and they were led into captivity. Nehemiah gets back there and sees, man, there's a lot of work that has to happen. I mean, everything is in disarray. And so he changes to make the city better. He got these walls started to be built. All within less than two months, the city was protected again. The temple was reestablished, started to be rebuilt. He reestablished the priesthood and the Levites so there would be worship and there would be a place for God's people to gather to proclaim God's greatness. He reestablished leadership within the city. He repopulated the city. He made incredible changes. And then Nehemiah had to leave. He had to go back to his real job, which was being the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. And for 12 years, Artaxerxes had allowed Nehemiah to spend all of his energy and the king's money in getting Jerusalem back on its feet, making those necessary changes so Jerusalem would be a center of God's worship once again for God's people with the promise of the Messiah. But Nehemiah had to leave. Now he left. He left. When he left Jerusalem, he left it in good hands. His brother was there, 
as one of the leaders in the city. He had established incredible priests that were focused on God's word. Ezra was there teaching and explaining God's word. They had everything going for them. And then chapter 13, the last of the chapters. And it's kind of broken up in a very strange way. But let me just start by reading the first three verses, and then we'll read the next three verses that give us some context. So in verse 1 of chapter 13, if you have your Bibles open or your YouVersion Bible app, on that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there was found written that no Amorite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call out a curse down upon them, this is all happening in Deuteronomy chapter 23 as Israel is going from uh, captivity in Egypt to the promised land. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. Verse 3, when the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. That is, the foreigners who had no relationship with God. It wasn't that if you weren't born an Israelite, you had no possession in the land, but if you were not a worshiper of God, the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Does anybody remember who Tobiah was? Chapter 2. Tobiah was one of the several individuals that really tried to come against Nehemiah. He did not want this change to happen. Who threatened Nehemiah with physical violence and then started lying about him and character assassinating him the rest of the time Nehemiah is in Jerusalem. So the priest, after Nehemiah left, put Tobiah, of all the people, in charge of the storehouse and the storerooms in the temple. Verse 5, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and the incense and the temple articles, and also the tithe of the grain, the new wine, the olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. Probably not a good change. You're putting an enemy of God in charge of the finances of the house of God. What do you think's going to happen? Not a good change. And so, verse 6 gives us the context of the time that this is happening. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. And here I learned the evil things Eliashib had done, providing Tobiah a room for the courts in the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw out all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the room, and I put it back into them, and I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. So you can imagine this scene. Now it's been 12 years. Uh, remember King Artaxerxes in the 20th year said, Nehemiah, you can go back and rebuild Jerusalem. It's been 12 years, all of that took place, and then sometime after that, Nehemiah gets wind of what else is happening in Jerusalem. So he goes back and he sees that Tobiah is now 
removed everything in the sanctuary and put his own stuff in there and set up house. Quite a shock. The people weren't shocked. The priests weren't shocked. That's just how it happened. That's the change that occurred. And the people just sort of went along with it. The priests went along with it. What are they going to say? They're not going to complain against the leadership. And so they simply go along with it. And Nehemiah notices it. And the first thing he sees is the change that took place has to be changed itself. If he kicks Tobiah and all of his household out of the temple sanctuary and storehouses and restores the storehouses to what it should have been, putting all the articles back in there that would have been the lampstands, the candles, everything for the sacrifices, everything necessary to carry on worship. Tobiah kicked out. Nehemiah brings back in. Now, I can just imagine. Nehemiah is back serving King Artaxerxes, has been gone for 12 years. He's now back in his household serving. And I imagine in his mind, he's hoping the best for Israel. He's saying, I gave them the best they possibly could have. They have new walls. They have a new temple. They have a new priesthood. They have everything they need. The word of God is again being celebrated and read and understood. They are set up for success. And so I imagine Nehemiah is thinking in his mind, when I go back there, it is going to be amazing. They are going to be singing and worshiping just like they were in chapter 12. There's going to be choirs declaring God's praise, and they're going to be having these battles of singing with one another. And when I walk in, it's just going to be a breath of fresh air that, oh, I'm back in the city of God, and all is well. The first thing he encounters is Tobiah, living in the temple. One of the men who had tried to tear the whole work down is now in control of the city's, basically, finances. And so he has to purify. He walks in and says, this cannot go on any longer. And I imagine his heart just sunk the moment he found out the change that happened when he had left. It goes on, even worse, verse 10. I also learned that the provisions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and the musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. Okay, so Tobiah, all the tithes that were coming in, Tobiah just kept it for himself and made himself rich and threw himself parties and just had a grand old time at the priest and the Levites' expense so much so that they had to leave. They took on secular jobs and went back to their own fields, went back to their own homes, went back to the outskirts of Jerusalem and left the worship on its own. Tobiah is in charge, let him do whatever he wants. There was no one there for worship. No one there gathering at the house of God for its purpose, sacrifice and worship, praise and thanksgiving, prayer and rejoicing. Man, the change had been made that terrified Nehemiah. How could it have gotten that bad that quickly? Nehemiah probably was only gone for a matter of 10 years, probably no longer than that. So he had 12 years of reform. He went back and in less than 10 years came back and everything that he tried to accomplish was reversed. It gets worse. Verse 11. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the 
house of God neglect you. Then I called them together and stationed them at their post. So he goes right to the heart of the matter, goes right to the leadership and says, why did you let this happen? It just didn't happen one day. You allowed Tobiah to move into the temple. You allowed Tobiah to ransack all of the reserves and tithes and offerings and use it for himself. You allowed the priests to go hungry and unpaid until they had to leave and get new jobs. You allowed that to happen. So he calls them on the carpet and holds them accountable and rebukes them. Why is the house of God neglected? It is the one thing that I put you in charge of. Don't neglect the upkeep, care, and service in God's house. Don't stop that. That is the one thing that you must, must continue. Because without that, God's people are left without a place to worship. Now, it's different than it was today than it was back then. Things have changed. They had one place to go to worship. They didn't have a church on every corner to go to. They had one. And to neglect that one place that God said is special. This is where I special meet with you. And to neglect and to not pay for the service that was there is absolutely disheartening to me and I. That was not the change he was hoping for. So he rebukes them, gets them together, and then assigns them, this is where you are. This is what you do, this is what you do, this is what you do. You should have accomplished this years ago, but you didn't, and so now I'm back to square one, holding you by the hand like we're in kindergarten and taking you to your seat. This is where you sit, and this is what you do. To grown men. Verse 12. All Judah brought the tithes of the grain, the new wine, the olive oil into the storeroom, and I put Shemaiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Zadiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hannah the son of Zakur, the son of Mahitha, their assistant because they were considered trustworthy. They made responsible, they were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. So Nehemiah comes back and the house of God is in absolute disarray. It is as if he had done nothing the 12 years that he was there. And so he guts the leadership and says, you guys allowed this to happen, so you're now removed. And I now put people that are trustworthy in place of your, your leadership. They are now a leader. They are now in charge, and they are in charge of gathering all the tithes, all the offerings, making sure that the house of God is not neglected, that it is kept up, that it is well-maintained, and that the people who are working there and serving there, they finally get paid. I can't imagine Nehemiah thought that's what he had to do when he came home. But he had to. No one else would do it. And he shouts out this popcorn prayer to God in verse 14. And says, remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of God and for its service. mindset was at the moment, but I, I, I can just imagine the feeling that this was his baby. This was his legacy, what he had done in Jerusalem. It was abused. His 
blood that he was accused, it was ransacked. And he didn't want that as a reflection of his relationship with God. He was closer to God than that. He knows that if I was there, this never would have happened. And he beseeches God, God, don't hold this against me. God's not going to hold this against you, Nehemiah. You're not the one who did it. That priest and Tobiah, they're the ones that abused the system, took advantage of it, used it for their own gain, and neglected the worship and service and maintenance of God's house. That was on them, not Nehemiah. So his heart is in the right place. His heart is begging God, don't hold this against me. God's not going to hold it against me. So not only when he got back to Jerusalem did all of his work in the house of God <laughs> take ten steps backwards, but there was more change that he had to address that he wasn't doing. Starting in verse 15 all the way through verse 22. In those days, the days he comes back to Jerusalem, in those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it off on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of other loads. They were bringing all of this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. That would have been Saturday for them. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing desecrating the Sabbath day. Did your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us in this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When the evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go to the guard and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. And then this prayer, Remember me, this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Now, Christians are not bound by the ceremonial regulations which govern the Jewish Sabbath day, that particular Saturday. Rather, we are bound by the delight of worship of God as seen in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 13 through 14. And let me just take a moment there and read this. Uh, because this was also part of what Jerusalem needed to follow. And it's what we're called to do. It's a very internal heart thing. In verse 13, it says, If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and doing as you please and speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
In the Old Testament, there were rules and regulations for everything. For what you could eat and not eat, for what you could wear and not wear, for what type of clothes or cloth you could combine and not combine. God did all of that to show the Israelites that they are to live differently than the world. That God has called them to a different standard, a standard of holiness. And he used a lot of those physical things to demonstrate this is how you live a holy life. And Israel was to respond to those type of laws and regulations and go, this is too much for me. This is, this is, I, I know God that you have these standards, but I can't live there. I can't live according to all these standards. And God's response is, I know you can't. That is why I'm sending the Messiah to pay that debt and to live the law perfectly on your behalf. And on this side of the cross, we have that beautiful benefit that I'm not bound to obey the law. Christ has obeyed the law on my behalf. I now have a joyful desire to want to honor God. And what he said about the Sabbath day is it's a day where I worship God. It's a day where I dedicate myself, Lord, you are the object of this day, not myself. But Israel had taken that moment where they were to worship God special on that day. And they had turned it on to any other day. It didn't look any different in the streets of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah had to remind them about 90 years ago, the history. And God sent the Babylonians, then the Assyrians, then the Persians to wake the Israelites up. Because they had turned away from God. And the one thing that they had done time and time again that God called them on, is that you took my Sabbath day and you used it like a normal day. You didn't do what I asked you to do. I asked you to take that day and turn your heart and make it a day in which you worship me with your heart. But you did none of that. You turned it into a normal day like any other day. And God said, but I told you to make the Sabbath day holy, to make it special. And I gave you all these regulations on what you could and couldn't do. You didn't come to me saying, help, I can't obey. You just simply didn't obey. You rejected it outright. And part of God's punishment to awaken Israel's holiness was to bring them into captivity. And Nehemiah says, don't you remember when you violated this? I took you into captivity. You're doing the same. Kind of went on their own merry way. 
so Nehemiah addressed it, and Nehemiah took action. He put people at the gate and said, don't let the merchants inside. And of course, they had to stay outside, which was a very dangerous thing, because outside the city gates, there wasn't any protection. There was protection inside the gates. The walls for one thing, and then the military. But outside the gates, they were on their own, so they did not stay there very long. And I can imagine they went back to their own hometowns as soon as night fell. But Nehemiah had to address not only how they desecrated the house of God, but how they neglected the worship of God, especially on Sabbath. But that wasn't it. When Israel falls into sin, it jumps in with both feet. It doesn't just dangle and play with sin. It, they just rush head forward to it. And they have done time and time and time again. And it amazes me. How can God be so patient with the nation of Israel? All you have to do is start reading in Genesis chapter 2. Immediately, God's people sin and rebel and sin against him in chapter 2. And that cycle of sinning against God has just filled the entire Old Testament. But then on a very quick remission. It's not just an Israelite problem, is it? You also have that same problem. Yeah, I didn't want to embarrass yourself and make you raise your hand. It's a me problem, a you problem, a us problem. A cycle of God wakes you up and says, no, live this way. Think this way. Talk this way. Act this way. And then all of a sudden, you don't know how you got there, but all of a sudden you're doing the same thing again. And you're like, have I not learned my lesson? You think of poor Peter. Peter was a man who was chosen by God, by Jesus Christ, to walk with him and learn from him. For three years, he dedicated his life to the teaching of Jesus Christ, literally walking, sleeping, eating, breathing, right alongside Jesus Christ, right alongside of him. And more than once, more than once, Peter forgot his faith. And Peter not only denied Christ, important thing, just like Peter, is that Jesus patiently and gently walked alongside of him and said, hey Peter, what do you call to do? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. He restored him, just like he restores us, just like he restored Israel every single time. Gave him a way out, brought him a judge, brought him a king, brought him a prophet, brought him a Nehemiah. God does the same thing to us. Brings other people in our lives, bring his word, his spirit, his dwelling us to awaken us, refresh us, and remind us, no, I can live different than the world. But Nehemiah had to deal with one more thing, starting in verse 23. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah, Israelites, meaning worshipers of God, who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Now remember, those were the children of the descendants of Lot's 
relationship with his daughter, or I should say, his daughter's relationship with him. So it was an incestual relationship, and they became those nations. And God was very clear, you have nothing to do with those nations that were born in sin. They don't worship me, they don't love me, they hate me. They sacrifice their own children on altars and burn them alive. Don't deal with them. And then Nehemiah walks in and sees these relationships commingling again. So it wasn't that they were foreign, it was that they were godless, heathens, unrepentant, and no desire to walk closely with God or be converted to Judaism. So this is what I saw. Half of their children, verse 44, spoke the language of Ashad or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. Nehemiah was passionate. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I think Nehemiah was a little upset. What did he say? Uh, plus, Nehemiah at this time would have probably been a good 60 to 70 years old. So he's running around all of the city of Jerusalem going, I cannot believe that you have intermarried with idolaters and that they don't even know the language of the Hebrews so they can't even read Scripture. Or understand it when the priest speaks. Well, that's right. The priests aren't even speaking anymore because they've been kicked out by another foreigner who now runs the temple and has spent all their money. So they fled. You can see the cycle that Nehemiah is looking at and going, this is not the change I expected. This is not the change that I designed or prayed for. So he goes around beating some of them, pulling out their hair. The one thing we need to realize when Scripture, in this case, is speaking historically, this is what happened. It doesn't necessarily mean this is what you should do. Okay? It's just saying, hey, this is what happened. Nehemiah went crazy, pulling out people's hair and beating them. It just, and it's not giving a commentary whether or not that was right or wrong. It's just saying, hey, this is what Nehemiah did. It's not saying, thus you shall also do in your hometown. You've run into some trouble. Uh, so, uh, and he made them make an oath to God and say, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like this that Solomon, the king of Israel, sinned? Rhetorical question. Yes, it was. Solomon and his hundreds of wives, all foreign wives, brought idols into his house. The children worshipped those idols. And Solomon's kids were the start of the downfall of Israel. Now you might be able to say Saul was, but at least you had David and Solomon before that. But poor Solomon's kids, they followed the ways of the idols, not the way of God. And Nehemiah says, don't you remember that time? Don't you remember that? Now they weren't there, but they knew the story. You're putting yourself in that same position. And it tells us something about Solomon. Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we now hear that you two are doing all this terrible wickedness and being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? God does say, remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, that believers are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's marriage. 
Believers should not marry unbelievers. And God never says, except if you really, really unlove them. Love is, love is, and like, like I said a couple weeks ago, love is necessary, it's vital, it's good, it's right. But it doesn't trump God's law. It doesn't. Emotions always have to be kept in check with, is this the right way of doing? Is this the right way of thinking? Is this the right way of speaking and acting? God says, I'll tell you that your emotions should not guide you. They're good and necessary, and they're, they're a part of us. We can't deny it. We can't be like Spock and deny that we have any emotions. Anybody get that reference? Good. You've done well. Uh, not that that's the point of Nehemiah, but that's what you're going to remember. And so Nehemiah says, you've got to stop. of God spending all your money. Stop letting the priests have to go get other jobs. Stop defiling my worship on the day I've given you. And stop defiling your marriages. It has led to nothing but trouble in the past. I guarantee it's going to lead to nothing but trouble in the future. And he ends on this note. Verse 28. One of the sons of Josiah, son of Eliashib, the high priest, who was the guy who let Tobiah into the house of the Lord to ransack it, was a son-in-law to Chambalat, the Horonite, uh, who was cohorts with Tobiah, and I drove him away from me. So even one of the main priests had fallen into this sin of marrying into an idolatrous family and not worshiping. And Nehemiah lets his heart out. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priesthood office and the covenants of the priesthood of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. And I made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. And that's the last we hear of Nehemiah. He did all he possibly could in the people of God that holiness and worship to God was to be pure and undefiled. He started to change back in chapter 1. Really in chapter 2 when he was able to go back to Israel. And he came back full circle 30 years later maybe. And thank God to let that change stand. God had promised to change us I want this to be the take-home for the entire book of Nehemiah, and that's in Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, of each of us, every one of us who claims the name of Christ as their King and their Lord and their Savior, he says this, and we know all things. God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. God has made a promise to change you. 
not to let you stay in that cycle of sin and repentance and that cycle of sin and repentance, sin and repentance, sin and repentance. He says, I'm going to take it all the way to the end and I'm going to glorify you. I am in the business of changing people, God says, and you are not exempt. You may not like the changes in society. You may not like the changes in culture. You may not like the changes in music or entertainment or food. You may not like that, and that's okay. But God says, I'm going to do something radical for you. I'm going to change you to your core. I'm going to make you like my son. And God has promised never to give up on that change. You are in a state of constant change before God. And he knows exactly what he's doing by bringing every circumstance into your life. None of it is by chance. All of it is by design so that you would be more one of the greatest changes a person can ever go through is to start this journey. To start this journey of going, God, you called me. And the way in which we demonstrate, and God has said, this is how you demonstrate it, that that change has stuck and that you are on the path to this glorification is through what we call the sacrament of baptism. God says that symbolizes death and resurrection. And there's no greater change than being dead and now being made alive. It is the greatest of all changes that you start with. And God has amazingly brought forth Simeon of Israel today to celebrate with you that transformation work of baptism from life to death. And I'd invite Susie and Les to come up. I do have to warn you. 